This is Andrew. And what do you want to talk about this week, Wolf? State machines. I, I was going to try to come up with, okay, I'll talk about country machines, but <laughs> no, I couldn't, couldn't think of anything. I think the, so, well, wouldn't yeah. the opposite of state machine be like an anarchist machine? I suppose. <laughs> but then what kind of machine would produce anarchy? Well, virtually any machine, really. <laughs> good one, good one. So. Okay, I'll get started. Um, so this was uh, brought to mind. I'm actually, I had to search our little page here, which is actually quite long, and we need to make our website page <laughs> one of these days. Yeah. But it's very easy for searching for my purposes, so I yes. have a bit of a disincentive there. Um, uh, Michael Sai linked to the Finite States of America, a uh, post by Sarush uh, Kanlalu. And it, it reminded me that uh, you could, should go to read it. I'll link to his show notes. And it reminded me that we actually never talked about same machines, which is sad because uh, I am a, a big fan of them. So let me kind of uh, present a case why you'd want to use state machines. So I guess maybe I should actually define what state machine is. And yes, it's, it's so the, it's the, there's a, a entire computer science idea behind it and with diagrams and stuff like that. I'm not, I would say that for our practical purposes, um, what you should think about as something like an integer that can move from one, one label or one symbol to the next in, and events from outside the system, uh, that could be a button click. It could be a packet on a network, move it from one, uh, one symbol or one value, uh, to the next in a specific way. And so it's, it's, uh, basically weaker than Turing machines. Uh, and that's a good thing. And it's, it's very limited. And so the, the events cause, and when you move from one state to the next, or with these labels, you call these transitions. And basically, it's very simple. All you have is it's like you have the state that you're currently in. That's all. They all are labeled, and events cause transitions. And what you can do is you can draw a box for each state, and then you can draw little arrows that illustrate how you can go from one of these labels to the next label. And uh, and what event would cause this? And it's a really limited vocabulary. And that's actually the power of state machines is that it allows you to keep things very simple. And for all their simplicity, they actually make things very clear that would be otherwise kind of uh, painful to represent in other ways. And <clears throat> so Alan Skorkin wrote a, I think it's somewhat famous. I noticed it came up like third hit when I searched for the state machines on Google wrote a good blog posting, a popular one, um, they're not mutually exclusive, you can be good and popular, that uh, called Why Developers Never Use State Machines. And he goes on to say how nice they are, and he has, uh, he, and I recommend them, and they're easy to learn and easy to use, and they're, they make a code that uses them very clear. And he kind of talks about the dynamics, why, uh, why developers don't use state machines more often. And I'll just quote him here. The problem is that you almost never create an object fully formed with, with all the behavior that's ever going to need. Rather, you build it up over time. This is the same. This the same is true for states that a state machine candidate can be in. So early on, you don't feel like your object state machine behavior is com complex enough to warrant a full blown state machine. You aren't going to need it and all that jazz. But later on, when it is complex enough, you feel like you've invested too much time and effort to replace it with something that has equivalent functionality. It's a bit of a catch twenty two. It's overkill by the time it. It's overkill, and by the time it's not, it's too late. Well, I'm going to actually uh, disagree with him here. I, I I think there is a dynamic there where they you kind of complexity tends to sneak up on you, 
And maybe because I'm so familiar with state machines and I use them so extensively, I tend to break them out maybe earlier than other other developers were would. But state machines are very uh, it's it's I could see where you it's you can add a bit here and there as you need more and more information. And there's, and I agree with his dynamic that by, and with each additional feature, you're like, Oh man, I got to rip out all this existing code that I know works. This adds one state, but there's the gotcha is that you think all this existing code works if you, but all you need to do is add one more bit, one more integer, one more string. And that's, that's the false assumption that it turns out that adding mm-hmm. the extra state, um, you're probably going to miss edge cases in that case. Um, so a good example is that, uh, imagine you had a class that does a simple job of like your opening connections to a server and, and you close connections to your server. So you can think of a, like a, like a socket class or something like that. And maybe it's like some sort of a pool class that manages multiple, uh, clients to one socket. And so you can, so you can, well, you, if you go to open the socket, well, you need an open call and you need a close call. Well, if you go to open and, of course, networks are slow, do you really want to block there and wait for for all the packets to return or have to suffer the, the timeouts? So in that case, you're like, well, I already maintain basically one bit of information, whether the socket is open or closed. Well, maybe I'll add another flag, and this flag will be whether I'm, in, I'm currently opening. That way I can do a callback, and I can, and that way I'll know whether I'm in this like indeterminate state of opening. And... Then it turns out that uh, what happens if you need to deallocate things and you need to unwind that uh, socket object in a way that's uh, so you can tell all your delegates that you're going down. So uh, and perhaps uh, you need in the close method you want to inform all your delegates. Well, again, you're kind of in this in- intermediate state where you're there. You call the close method, but you don't synchronously close because you've got to inform all the delegates. So you're kind of in the closing state. And all of a sudden, you have all these bits of information, and it turns out that really what you're tracking is is you're moving from state to state, and if you take these individual bits of information and unify them into, let's say, one integer that moves from one enum to the next, um, all that code gets much simpler. And I would say in languages like Objective-C that <clears throat> when you have compile time safety like we do, you know, to, to the extent we have an Objective-C, that the idea that ripping out the code that implements these things that you added incrementally, all you need to do is comment out those IVARs or properties, and your compiler will light up with all the warnings of all the places you have to re-examine. And this is actually one of the, to me, one of the big advantages of uh, compiled language, well, you know, t- type-safe t- languages like Objective-C, where you it will flag everything that's being that's missing, and that's not exactly a type safety or compile type thing. And you could do things with linters and stuff like that, but um, it is one of the advantages of the type of the staticky nature of Objective C. So this is, is this is your to do list, and this is a great way to catch all those edge cases that uh, that state machines really help out with. So you can look at the, how you use this variable everywhere, and then replace it with a state machine that's simpler. So the <clears throat> There's a bunch of libraries that help support state machines. Uh, the granddaddy of them all is SMC, the State Machine Compiler. And its primary focus is on code generation. So you basically lay out all your states and all your events and all your transitions and what are valid transitions and not. Um, it, it, it is pretty much focused on code gen and supports a litany of languages, including Objective-C. 
Um, there's a, a few more runtimey type things that fits Objective C's nature, uh, perhaps more directly. Uh, there's Transition Kit, there's State Machine, and there's State State C, which apparently is pronounced static. And I'll link to all those. Uh, I have used none of these in Anger, so uh, I guess I use SMC in Anger. But um, in general, I found uh, you don't need very much to use a State Machine. Um, in general, when I go to use a state machine, I tend to just do it in the way C intended, which is with enums and switches. Um, these are kind of these are very primitive constructs, and as I pointed out before, that C is a well, not on the show, but in, in uh, I believe in my uh, GitHub Code Conf talk, that C is an interesting story because it's if. It's a very primitive language, especially going from KNR to ANSI C. That's the, the changes they had to make are very interesting in terms of software programming history, and in terms of what they decided needed to be involved and uh, what it would need to be added. But when you look at C, it's you know it's a, it's a it's a pretty minimal language, and the fact that we have switches and the fact that it has enumerations uh, really should indicate to you how powerful they are in terms of helping make, write understandable code. The I would so I'm so switches do are really great for uh, lightweight kind of uh, state machine implementation. I would recommend that I guess I've never, surprisingly never linked to it from the show, considering how much how extensively I use it and and uh, and how it's really helped me. But I have a GitHub project called jrenum, and it helps it uh, basically instead of writing type defenum or nsenum, uh, you write jrenum. And then you write out your enumeration type and all its possible values. And the benefit of using jrenum instead of uh, enum directly or nsenum is that it uh, will generate the strings, uh, the strings for you, and also dictionaries for you. So that way, it basically it takes the static time type of concept. Of the problem with uh, enumerations in C is that they're just labels for integers, and at runtime, those really nice labels go away. So JR enum turns it into uh, <coughs> it, it turns it into essentially a runtime dictionary. So that way, you can query it, and you can say, okay, what are all the possible values? What are all the va- possible keys? And also at runtime, when you hit a state you're not expecting, instead of just printing out forty two, you can actually point out that oh, the stream state is closing. So I uh, recommend you check that out. And for almost all practical cases, I've found that JRNUM and switch statements have been adequate for me. Uh, if I was facing another really nasty, gnarly kind of uh, state thing I had to deal with, I would actually bring out the bigger tools that I mentioned. Uh, but I haven't had to do that recently, especially a lot of these new, pa- a lot of these packages I've mentioned are new. And one thing I want to call out Swift here, that Swift's uh, enums have the advantage. I guess I'm swapping between calling them enums and enums. I'm sorry about that. I'm apparently inconsistent in that. <laughs> but, oh well. Um, Swift's enums are, have the advantage that they also can include payload. And that's a, that's a really nice feature. And that's something, something that I wish uh, Objective-C could end up doing, but it uh, doesn't. Um, but the disadvantage, and they also have the have some really nice pattern matching in Swift for handling the the cases in a higher level way. Uh, but the biggest downside of Swift's enum support is that, from what I can tell, you can't actually take a enumeration label and convert it into a string at runtime. 
Um, I hope I'm wrong about that. I didn't. I just realized that right before uh, you called me up. So I am hoping I'm wrong about that, and hopefully, readers of the show can tell me how horribly wrong I am. And that's it for me. So you can't. Well, you can't change the. What you're doing with JR Anum is is making a compile time uh, translation of it, right? Is is yeah, or is that, is that a runtime thing? Yeah, it, it, it does. A, basically, it's compile time cogen, so you can actually have it's runtime dictionaries, like macros and stuff. Yeah, right? yeah, all yeah. that, all it's, that. It's macro evil, yeah. And I mean, the big problem with Swift is that there are no macros, so right. you can't do mm-hmm. that kind of, right. of thing. So a lot of the nicer things that that we we've become accustomed to in CBS languages, you can't do, mm-hmm. right? If you can call um, macros nice. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, they're useful. Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, they're a kay. nice escape hatch. And one thing that I found with state machines is, because I was wondering how you were going to define it, because for me, just maintaining state about an object is feels like a kind of state machine. But mm-hmm. you're talking about something more, more specific, more yeah. limited. Mm-hmm. And I have found that, yeah, I haven't needed third-party libraries to help with this, and Enum is, is almost always good enough, and I think I always say Enum, so there you go. Mm-hmm. But I have found that when you say, okay, it's not so complicated yet, I only need one flag, okay, I only need two flags, okay, I only need three flags, <laughs> okay, I need enough flags to be a United Nations, <laughs> now it's time to switch, but I found that that switch in the middle of, of your code, and it's usually after... It's like retrenching after a big advance, right? Mm-hmm, you've, already, right. you've done a huge amount of work. Now you've got to make sure you understand the work you just did. Mm-hmm. I find switching to to a state machine, which I then completely document and add tests for, like right then, can be really useful to keep a project from from getting away from you. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, I, I find the same dynamic. Ready. So uh, my topic this week is will also involve something that Swift does not have. Although I'm only going to mention it in passing. And so my topic is standard swap versus functional programming. Yeah. And that's, for people who know what standard swap is, that's probably going to sound a little weird because why are you opposing those two things? So for those of you who don't know what swap is, swap is, and actually, Wolf, you could probably give this topic as well as me, so I'm, I expect to get some corrections from you. From what I remember, swap is part of a school of exception safety in C++ programming that I was tangentially involved with 10 to 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember who it came from. There's a couple of sort of gurus from C++ who are still around, but aren't necessarily making as big a splash as they used to. Uh, Herb Sutter and Scott Myers are the two Mm -hmm. ones that I read a lot of books by them. I don't remember which one was necessarily like the proponent, if there was one, of of using Swap all the time, or if there were a bunch of people who did that. But I know uh, uh, there's a guru of the week post uh, that mentions using swap that's exception safe class design part one copy assignment and so i will put a link to that in show notes this is from years and years and years ago but the interesting thing about this school of thought about the way that they thought was that you want to have your code be able to handle any exception being called at any time right so Wherever you couldn't just say, well, I'll handle any exception from this method, but I know this method doesn't get called with that doesn't have exceptions thrown from it, or this method doesn't have thrown very much, so we're not going to deal with it. No, anything you call, any line you write could throw an exception. Mm-hmm. And this was actually more of a big deal back in the Mac OS 9 days when, in fact, you could run out of memory at any point, mm-hmm. so you could have an error, error handling necessary at any point. 
I actually found that a little jarring going from 9 to 10, where for 10, basically, I guess, we don't really worry too much about memory. You're right. Memory, uh, running out of memory because we've got virtual memory. So, and, and so any impetus to start using this school of thought, to use this way of doing things, kind of went by the wayside. So anything can throw, now, almost anything. I think constructors and possibly destructors were a place where, no, there's enough problems with it. Really don't do it. Don't do it in there. Now, most of the people I, I work with didn't do this, and most of the places I worked with didn't do this. I would have liked to have done more of it because it requires a lot of discipline. I think it, it can be very sort of uh, bracing style to use. So what do you do to make that work with your code? Your code has, let's say, 20 steps mm-hmm. to do for a particular task. And any one of those steps is going to wind up building up state in a way that you know your object is kind of half done. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily want to have code which says, well, I can handle my object being quarter done, half done, three quarters done, and still be valid. You really probably don't want to, don't want to deal with that. So what they do is they say, well, if you're going, to do, you're going to make something complex like that, make it as an object which is separate than your main model. Mm-hmm. Make a, a second, I mean, a copy of your, of your main object. And then when you're done, when you're done with all the things where something could go wrong, network errors, user errors, whatever, then you use this method called swap to replace the old object in its hierarchy of model objects mm-hmm. with the new object. Mm-hmm. And the, the interesting thing about swap, swap is not that complicated. It's intentionally not complicated. It just swaps two pointers, really. That's, I guess that's not necessarily the, the formal definition of it, but that's really all it, all it usually did in, in C++, is you would say, you know, hey, my parent object is pointed at this object. Now it's going to point at this other object. And because it's just swapping pointers, it is guaranteed not to throw mm-hmm. because you're not allocating any memory uh, in uh, the heap. It's all in the stack. You know, one, one pointer's worth of memory should not, should not screw you up. And then when you've swapped them, you can deallocate the old object and everything's all set. And so that way, you know, hey, all your other methods can throw something Deal with that when your object isn't made yet, when your state isn't sort of committed, then commit it. It's really kind of a, it feels like a very uh, source control management kind of situation. You're mm-hmm. committing yeah. changes rather than just uh, making them kind of willy-nilly. And so it seems to me these days when people talk about functional programming, they're, they're kind of talking the same way about state. They want to manage state. They want to make sure you don't get yourself into into bad uh, halfway state or, or corrupt state. Mm-hmm. But they're not talking about exception safety because Apple has pretty much killed exception safety, mm-hmm. which I'll talk about in a minute. They're talking about thread safety. So in some ways, thread safety is the new exception safety. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. But it's but they're they're related, right? Now, Apple, again, pretty much killed exception safety. And they did it by saying, well, for our platform... We don't want you to use exceptions at all. We want you to use errors, mm-hmm. error objects. And so when you need to propagate error objects, you will pass them through all of your methods with an extra parameter in your methods. And everybody always grumbled about that. We've had at least one show about that, possibly yeah. more than one. Yep. And exceptions are only for things which are logic problems. You should only throw an exception when it's something that you're, you should fix about your application before it ships. But by by doing that, they've kind of killed the need for, for standard swap and mm-hmm. that philosophy. And I think that in some way that kind of paved the way for a lot of this functional programming thought. Because if we had all been programming with swap, with 
this idea that any of our code could fail at any point, all this mutable state that we've been gathering up might be less of a deal than it seems to be now than, than we seem to be switching to functional programming for the sake of, of solving that problem. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, I'm talking very simply about this. I'm talking in a very generic way. There's whole contexts and cultures behind these, these ways of thinking. Swap was a very, exception safety was a very C++ way of thinking that I don't think you could transplant to Objective-C anymore because the culture has changed. It's a different, different way of doing it. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's interesting, and I guess I'll, I'll finish with this, that as far as I can tell, there are no exceptions in Swift. Right. Right? So isn't that kind of crazy, right? Mm-hmm. In theory, you could have an exception-heavy application even now in modern Objective-C and use swap and use all these old things that we were talking about 15 years ago with C++. You could do it if you really wanted to. There's no reason it doesn't work except that Apple has said don't do it. It's policy change. Mm-hmm. It's like the exception store, right, instead of the app, app store. <laughs> um, but for Swift, they've said, you know, hey, we never liked exceptions. Now we're going to codify it into the language. Mm-hmm. That you, can't, you can't do it like this forever. And again, that might be one reason why they're they're so interested in, in functional programming is because you need some other way. If you're not going to enforce uh, state safety through, through swap approaches, you need to try functional stuff. Now, I don't, I'm not going to talk about functional at all today, um, but I do think they're, they're kind of orthogonal, I think. They're, you know, they're, functional programming encapsulates state in different ways so that you can't screw it up. But, that's, but that'll be it for now. Okay. Any thoughts? Yeah, I, I actually, I this is uh, a new idea for me. I hadn't considered the kind of duality of <laughs> the, that it's, it's of the exception safety versus the thread safety, and they does kind of yeah, you're right. They both kind of hinge on the idea of mutable state, and, um, and I would say that the um, especially the kind of the uh, reactive cocoa type stuff tends to kind of, kind of um, focus more on. Um, Making, I mean, part of the problem with mutable state is that it's essentially you have all these hidden caches everywhere, and and the problem and what's that standard quote? It's like there's two hard things in in computer science: naming things and invalidating caches. And so it turns out like you know caching is, is they get stale, and it's kind of their definition. And uh, we have uh, and you look at things like processor architectures, and the, we have so many levels of caches to speed things up, and keeping those all coherent or letting them go incoherent for speed per- performance reasons. Um, that gets really complicated really quickly. So the idea is that you kind of make this kind of uh, mutable state, if you at least make it explicit, if you can make explicit, at least try to bottleneck as much as you can and put its own separate things so that way you can you, you uh, get more uh, kind of automated updates of these caches. Um, yeah, so the idea that you know this all does kind of hinge on mutual state, which is a pretty big problem. So I guess this, our topics are a little bit at... at uh, against each other, that here I'm talking about. Oh, this is how you do a mutable state, <laughs> you know, in your in your code, and you're like, oh, um, no, you should actually. Well, I guess you're not saying don't do it, but you're saying to use this committing type of architecture type thing. We're not really fighting. Yeah, not really fighting. The other thing I will say is that, man, Swift has been such a flashback to C++ for me. <laughs> That's true. This yeah. all like all like my timeline filling up with people having type discussions and and, and stuff like that, and like <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> and it makes sense. And you know, in so many ways, C plus plus is was a horrible language for uh, like having these type like kind of type discussions. And Swift is a much better language for this type of stuff. Um, but it's just 
and I think that's kind of one of the reasons why I'm less interested in Swift than I think I should be. <laughs> it's like I, I feel like it was like those, uh, you know, the dorm room conversations into three o'clock in the morning about the philosophy man. It's like I've already had all these type discussions and how to how to structure all these things, and so this it's not new to me. And in fact, like a lot of it, I felt like I was just kind of spinning my wheels, and it didn't actually yeah. help me write better software. So it's like I'm just I'm not. Not getting too into it this time around. Although I suspect if I had a better implementation like Swift is or Haskell, that I would actually get more into it and it would actually help me write better software. So uh, anyway, I think I've scrambled well, yeah, enough. The idea that, that we didn't have all these discussions and yet we wrote a whole bunch of great apps for the last 10 years kind of tells me that we don't really need to have these discussions. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, mm-hmm. Well, at least, you know, we'll see. Yeah. And we'll see you next time.